The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Like three pairs of sweatpants and two pairs of silk pajama pants. Before we talk about our clothes, Kate, we have to announce the episode because we are now live. Hi. It is five o'clock, April 7th, 2020. The coronavirus is rampaging across the world. Uh, Boris Johnson is still in the hospital. What, what other terrible things are going on? Um, the Wisconsin election yeah, is still Wisconsin happening, but- is melted down. No one, no one who has lupus can actually get treated for it because right. everyone has this crazy run on, on chloroquine. I am actively baking biscuits. Sorry, <laughs> I just no thought we were talking about what's going no on right no such now. thing as fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we are here. Kate Klonick and uh, uh, my, I don't even know how to describe Alan Rosenstein anymore. My good Mensch. friend. Mensch. Uh, Mensch, yes. Uh, uh, the only, the first ever Lawfare student contributor the only person who has called me an asshole in the first time we ever met in a position of like subordinate to, to me, uh, which for which I have so much respect. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and a professor at the University of Minnesota, author of all kinds of cool things and critically husband of Hannah Nieprash who was supposed to be with us on this show, but has gotten called into a different call. So Hannah, who is a healthcare economist, will join us on a different episode. We should uh, have an economist show then. It's true. We're overdue. I, yeah, exactly. We, there, there have not been enough uh, economists on the show. So um, Alan, we're here to... Uh, talk about all things surveillance and COVID-19, but first tell us about what you're drinking and how you are spending your time while you are in uh, isolation. Uh, Yeah, so I am drinking a rum old-fashioned. This is a maple rum old-fashioned because I'm too lazy to make simple syrup and this is the most available. It's, you know, it's, it's a, not a lot of maple syrup and it's pretty decent rum. So, which is actually not too sweet. So it's actually, it's pretty good. Nice. Yeah, no, rum is, rum is great. It's, I got into it because whiskey was too expensive and rum costs half as much. Um, and now sound, I just like you it. You literally sound like a bootlegger or a pirate. I'll take, I'll take either. So Maybe they're the, the same thing. People don't appreciate that rum is actually even more American than whiskey. Because rum came first, right? Rum. Yeah, but rum like, has got, let's be serious here. Yeah, rum I was just going to say, isn't that like the like, straight up triangle trade? Yeah, exactly. Directly I mean, to we've slavery. Got, we've got some. some. There's some there's, hardships with that comparison. Yes, <laughs> I, uh, that is a fair point. And I, I am now. Rem- baggage that whiskey doesn't have. <laughs> I, I, I am now remembering that line from the musical 1776 uh, about rum and something and, and slaves. Sit down, John. No, yes. different no. line. Sit down, 
Thomas, right? It wasn't he yelling at Thomas Jefferson. Anyway, it's delicious. Um, so that's what I'm drinking. And what am I doing? I'm, I'm teaching. Uh, school is still in session, though we're doing everything remotely, which is an interesting experience trying to teach a hundred student law course on Zoom, but it's surprisingly, uh, surprisingly effective. Um, I am uh, finally finishing Middlemarch, which is a project I've had on and off for the last seven years or so. So I'm really, really Alan. excited. Oh my God. Sorry, Ben. I have to say something for a second. I was supposed to read that book twice in college. Like I took a class called Middlemarch and the Sopranos, which was literally a comparison between Middlemarch and the entire, I went to Brown. Okay. And so this was like, but there was this kind of, uh, there was this like arch and like, I don't know. I never actually finished the book, but it is quite good once you get into it. It's a, it's a really, I didn't appreciate it. It's, it's one of the funnier no, books it's really I've funny. actually, okay, so it's, it's like the, it's like the Tom, honestly, it's the, the best comparison I can make for someone. And you have to sort of get into the language, obviously it's a different social setting and stuff like that. But once you get into the language, it honestly reminds me more than anything of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. Okay, wait a minute. You know, this is the second time you have referred to this book as funny. In it's my really sense. funny. It is really and, actually quite funny. Just like and Pride I, and Prejudice is funny. But you I have not, I have not read this book since college. Uh, I did read the whole thing in college. And what I remember about it is that it is about an, uh, uh, an ambitious, uh, highly creative woman who marries a, uh, who is very excited to marry a young man who seems to value and uh, respect her and they get married and he turns out to be a monster who wants to keep her in a box. Um, and I don't, I remember being horrified by it from, from the moment I realized what the book was about through the end. Uh, I I just don't remember mirth as being any more a part of that book than it is about the house of mirth. So I I, I feel way, like you're describing funny too. I feel like you're describing like the Bronte version of Middlemarch. It, it, yes, it's, yeah, it's not. It, it's it's not. actually like you have to think about it. That's why it was compared to The Sopranos because it yeah. was about like it's it was episodic and how it came out. It didn't actually get published as that giant tome that it is now. It got published in series like in like regular installments. Um, I forget the magazine that it was published in, but like anyways, you have to think about it as like a, like a serial serial drama comedy. Well, um, I'm going to reread it. And... Also, Moby Dick is really funny. Yeah, well, Mi Moby Dick is wonderful, but I'm going to it's, it's a lot of lot of whale facts that I, I don't really need. I can't get I, over like the I'm whale really facts. into the the. I carving. love the whale facts. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm going to reread Middle March with an eye toward finding the funny parts, and maybe I'll maybe I'll send them to you, Alan. Wow, that'll I'll... be the real in lieu of fun. <laughs> I'm on the receiving end of Wittis's book report. Yeah, like. Like, oh, it's really funny <laughs> The pa on page 312 when she's completely miserable and sobbing her. Things can be I, funny I, I and laugh. dramatic. It's, it's, a, it's, a dark, it's a dark comedy, right? But I, you, know, you should read it because I, I think you will be, and I, I think, so how old were you when you read it the first time? Probably 21. Yeah, so I think especially if you read it when you're 21 and you identify as, as is quite reasonably to do so with Dorothea's character. I think if you read it when you're older, you kind of realize that they're all kind of ding-dongs. 
even the good ones are kind of ding-dongs. And so I think it's just a lot easier to laugh at them. Um, although it's also sad in places. I, I, will, I will own that. Um, I'm just giving everyone a fair warning. I wasn't joking about actively cooking biscuits. I made sourdough biscuits and they're in my oven right now. It smells amazing in here. You're very jealous. Um, but I have to, it's the buzzer is going to go off in a second. So just FYI. Okay. I, when I, the buzzer goes off, um, <laughs> sorry. we will, we will uh, dismiss you for a moment okay. and you can take care. <laughs> I, I want people to be able to see the coronavirus free lap dances background here. Yeah, that's. Where is that from, though? It was that... sent me by a friend in Las Vegas. Oh, Where God. else could it possibly be from? Kate? That's a great. That, that's a, like that or Atlantic I City. Well, or something. I mean, that I was just going to say New Jersey is the yeah. only place. It could my, be from. So here, here is my very nerdy question to to Ben that I asked him before we started rolling, which is: Is that a hyphen or an n dash? Because it actually makes a big difference. Is it no a one virus free lapped? <laughs> no one cares. No, I think it is meant to say. I think coronavirus is meant to be one word. It's meant to be a a a, 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 a hyphen. So it's a virus-free lap dances. Not I'm going to take your background and I'm just gonna put take out coronavirus and like put in free lap dances. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's what I'm just gonna whether, it. whether it's the lap dances that are free or the lap dances that are free of coronavirus. I, I think the lap way. dances, they have to be lap free lap dances I think, <laughs> to be free of coronavirus. I'm just saying, look, I just, I want, you know, this is no. all, guys, this is part of the economic and social life of our nation that at some point needs to restart, right? You know? Truly, you're, truly. You're absolutely right. Um, the lap dancing industry has been really hurt by the coronavirus. I actually have been thinking, I was actually thinking about this uh, because I, well, after Danielle was on like last week, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about SESTA-FOSTA and like all of the ways that like that hurt 230. Like, people were against 230 reform on SESTA-FOSTA that were active in the sex worker industry which then kind of spurred me. I'm like, oh, wow, the sex worker industry. I wonder what's happening with that right now. Like who the hell is going to be going to visit? Like, um, and like, I mean, it's kind of a gig economy. Yeah. I don't, I, I, like, I don't I mean, know, but a, I got to assume they don't get unemployment insurance, right? I mean, it's a yeah, big problem. Obviously not. And I mean, like yeah, I was actually kind of, tips. I actually, I'm not, I'm actually kind of not joking. I was like, oh yeah, that's like a marginal on the margins, like type of like personal service that is like super, is just going to disappear. Um, well, and, the, and the much, you know, there's a, there's the, uh, there's various iterations of it, right? There's the street version, which, uh, which must be entirely dried up since so few people are on the, are walking around in urban areas. But there's also, uh, I, I actually wonder if there's a, you know, pretty substantial illicit uh, call girl uh trade going on because you know a lot of people who can't go out are ordering in basically oh yeah no totally no that's exactly and like sex clubs or like or or stripper clubs or anything like this like i don't know ever it's like you kind of scale it out and you realize how interconnected the economy is and how it's like water through like a water wheel. And it's just kind of like, if there's not, if it's not like, if everything, it touches everything and it's constantly keeping everything going. And if it's, if it stops for one person, like my parents, 
I don't know. All of you are probably, my parents are like, it's great. We're eating in more and cooking for ourselves. And it's great. Uh, we're saving lots of money. And I was like, you're saving money because you're not spending money, which means the restaurants are going out of business. Servers, servers don't have any type of income and you're not going to have a culture to come back to based around like in-person restaurants. Um, and like the basic economic truth of that is, uh, I just don't think I've ever, anyone's ever felt it as deeply as this. Like, Yeah, I think, well, I, th I think part of what's hard to grasp and, and, um, I, I think sort of what's interesting, right, is that the the modern economy, and I'm not an economist um, at, at all, so I'm just thinking about this as a layperson. But you're but, married to one. But I, I, am, I, am, <laughs> I am, don't I know it, um, but I'm married to one. Um, no, just how um, momentum driven everything is, right? Which is to say, it's like, it's not, you know, I, I, kind of my naive view of the economy, right, is that you have someone doing something here and someone doing something there and someone doing something there. And that can stop for a while and then it can restart. But in fact, it only works because everything is just in time, right? Like I get a paycheck and so then I go to the restaurant and then the cook goes to the grocery store. And then huh. like, at some point you get to a strip club and then that person has to go like buy a hammer at the hardware store, right? And, and the moment that stuff stops, it can't just stop for a moment and then gracefully restart, right? It has to then all restart in the same way or in, in the right order. And yes. that is, is, kind of a terrifying thought for when well, this the inefficiencies of the market are being laid bare, like the waste, for example, like, so it's really interesting. So I've heard in, New sorry, that's my biscuits. Uh, <laughs> I've heard in New York that like, basically the, um, the basically what's happening is that, um, all restaurants are requesting three to four hours, like by five o'clock or like four o'clock or five o'clock takeout orders. And then they won't fill orders after five o'clock. So you place your order by five and then, and that's to allow them to also scale the amount of sourced goods that they're buying in order to fulfill those orders for the next week and like, or for the next day. Um, and that's like a much tighter and much more, I mean, Restaurants, especially in New York, which always are working at a thin margin, are very good at making do with like, or reusing things or recycling things. But like, it's kind of amazing. I think it's maybe it'll, maybe we'll come out as a leaner economy. I don't know, but in a long time. Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I, I have no doubt. <laughs> like it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, you think of something like the, the black death, right? Which for obvious reasons, this is not, unfortunately, right? But there's, you know, a lot of historians think, or maybe this is the kind of standard historical view, right? That the Black Death was this, the main thing that actually drove economic and scientific progress in Europe, because it killed a third of the people or half the people, and suddenly there were no laborers. And so all of these, you know, the, the people who acted as capitalists at the time, the landowners had to um, invest in all this labor-saving equipment and science and machinery and stuff like that. And so what you ended up with is, um, is a much more advanced economy when it recovered, which of course is cold comfort to like the half of Europe that died, right? So um, yes, I'm sure there will be in, in certain senses, economies and efficiencies to be extracted from this, but um, still doesn't. This is like Ben's. <laughs> this is Ben. There's the upside of the of the Black Death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for yeah, your, exactly. Next, for when, your plagues piece. When I am lying with a uh, uh, in, uh, uh, intubated, gasping for air, my last thought will be, 
what comfort I can take in the efficiencies of the economy that I am contributing. You, to. you know, you can just what you what you really should think to, to drive it home. You can think of what are the inefficiencies I've brought to lawfare and how better will it be in my absence? I think that's, that's what you should. Right. That's how you should console yourself on your on your deathbed. Um, um, so, um, uh, Kate, you should get your biscuits. I did. They're, oh, well, you did. Kind of, well, either they need a little more time, so they're just gotcha. Hang out. All right. Um, so everybody <laughs> who's watching, if you want to get in on the conversation, you know the drill. Some uh, uh, put a question in the Q and A. Do not just raise your hand because then we will assume you're a Zoom troll and we will dismiss you with true. a shocking so lack of due process. Uh, <laughs> but write your question. We will bring you on to pose it. Um, and Alan, let's talk about surveillance and COVID-19. Uh, Oren Kerr was on the other day and suggested that surveillance may be a civil liberties plus in this environment to the extent it lets us get out, get back out in the world a little bit. Um, uh, public I thought health. that was such an interesting point. Did yeah, you? so let, let's start with that. What do you think? Yeah. I, embrace surveillance as the way out here? I mean, if it works, right? Um, I, I, I think we should probably have more surveillance than we, than we currently have. I mean, the, the, the problem is we're making, you know, imperfect, we're making decisions based on imperfect information. And so um, it's very easy to look at whatever piece of evidence you want to look at to support your, your particular view. I mean, the, the reason that I've been exploring this question of is surveillance the, or part of the answer for getting out of this faster. And I think Oren's totally right. Um, this is not a, a liberty security or privacy security trade-off as is usually framed with these issues. It's just a straight up liberty, liberty trade-off because I would love to leave my house and I am not at liberty to do so. Um, uh, yeah, the interesting thing about what's conscribing your liberty is both like government instruction, which I would actually say is like to my legal realist mind is like the least constricting part of like the liberty, like, and the, the, the realist norm-based liberty of reality-based liberty, which is just like, no one wants to get this disease and they don't want to leave their house. So they don't want to get this disease. Can we, I just want to like spell that out. as like two different things. Like, it's not like China ordering us to stay home is the reason we're actually, or like, or our government asking us to stay home is the reason that we all are like agreeing to stay home. We also see that there is some like social norm and like reason for this to be occurring. Well, yeah, so I wanted to, 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 to jump on the social norm thing, right? So I, you know, we have, an, we have an official, I'm in Minnesota and we have an official order not to, to be, honestly, to be honest, I'm not actually even sure what the official Minnesota order says. Um, and I think that's just a testament to the fact that a large part of why a lot of people are staying home, and I think especially true for younger people who potentially have less of a, a risk of contracting the disease themselves, or if they do get it of having a really bad outcome, is just, I, I don't want to get the stink eye from everyone else as I'm traipsing around uh, around the town. So I think a lot of what's actually keeping people indoors is is good old fashioned shame and fear of social judgment, which is, uh, which is excellent. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I, for, for me, the big piece of evidence is South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore. And it's just looking how East Asian countries um, have dealt with this problem. And 
uh, again, right, it's, it's hard to compare. There's so many variables. They're different countries. They are smaller. They uh, went through SARS and MERS in the last 15 years. So they generally have their act together more than we have, um, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, it does seem like a big part of why they've been able to avoid total lockdown is because they are doing really, really, really uh, quite invasive, invasive um, privacy, sorry, invasive surveillance. Um, and, and, you know, I, when people have been talking about the East Asian examples, there's like a whiff of this sort of like, well, you know, East Asian cultures, they're much more Confucian, they're much more hierarchical, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I don't, I'm just not actually convinced of any of that. I, I think that they're just, frankly, 10 years or five years or at this point, two months ahead of where we are, right, where they've realized that um, they value their freedoms just as much as the next liberal democracy does, but they've decided that um, uh, this is this is worth uh, this is worth doing, and so I don't know. I just and and I especially and especially when I think of this as compared to 9/11, which obviously was a huge loss and a huge threat. Um, still, nothing, nothing like this in terms of both lives lost and economic dislocation. I just I just don't see a world in which um, uh, we don't very seriously consider a, a gigantic surveillance apparatus coming out of this. And there are good ways and bad ways of doing it, obviously. Um, All right, so we're gonna get to that, but we have a question first from John Bordeaux, uh, faithful uh, viewer. John, what's on your mind? I guess my question, we've always talked about the right to privacy and I do like the way you framed it. We've always had the privacy liberty debate, um, but it, I sense now that privacy has become weaponized so if I want to be able to walk around without being surveilled, without you knowing my health status, that now is a threat to you. So have I lost my right to privacy because now my health situation is a public concern? I mean, I, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I, you know, we've never, we've never had, so th there is no such thing as a universal right to privacy um, in American, certainly not in American legal culture. There are various little pockets where you get rights to privacy. So there's like rights to privacy and not being um, harassed or there are other kinds of rights to privacy, the rights to privacy in the criminal context, but there's no general right to privacy because if there was then basically the modern administrative state circa, you know, 1930s and beyond wouldn't exist. If only because, you know, the modern state requires just massive, massive amounts of tracking and surveillance and, and some such. We just don't tend to call it Surveillance. I think this is a point you, Ben, made really well in um, this book you wrote with Gabby Bloom um, a couple of years back, right, where you guys pointed out that we do surveillance all the time. It's just that when we're okay with it, we don't call it surveillance. We call it, it monitoring or right. like, it, I don't know what we call it. In the public health arena. So look, we do surveillance when the cops surveil the streets, right? We like that surveillance. We, we say we want more cops on the streets and we call it community-oriented policing. Uh, what are they doing? They're standing on street corners watching what happens. It's surveillance of public spaces, right? When we, uh, we don't call what you do at an airport surveillance, even though they're literally body scanning you and going through your bags. They call it screening, right? And so we have all these euphemistic words for surveillance that we like. The one community that is totally honest about surveillance and that uses surveillance 
in a positive context, ironically, is the public health community. And so you'll always hear infectious disease people saying things like, oh, we need more surveillance on, you know, on, on malaria in this country. Uh, and what they mean is testing and, you know, sort of awareness of the spread of things. But it's a, it's a series of linguistic games that we play to avoid acknowledging that actually we do all kinds of surveillance all the time. And I, and I will say, I think part of, part of what, makes me, um, what makes me more confident in thinking that one of the results of this will be a vastly extend, expanded surveillance structure is precisely that um, public health people are already comfortable with the idea of surveillance. Now, they're not necessarily comfortable with like national security surveillance or criminal law surveillance or the sort of surveillance that, that like we tend to think about, right? Uh, but they are comfortable with the idea of surveillance. So when someone tells them, you know, we don't want a surveillance state or surveillance is the road to dictatorship, I think their response quite reasonably is, no, it's more the road to controlling malaria um, or whatnot. Now, you know, in, in terms of um, whether privacy has been weaponized, I, I think, I think um, sometimes it certainly, it certainly is, right? Um, I, I think that there are really two you know, I, the, the people that push back against surveillance, I think you can often kind of roughly group them into two different buckets. Right? One bucket are libertarians um, who just, I think of sort of like the Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec kind of person who is just horrified at the idea that anyone knows anything about them. And they have this kind of emotional revulsion. They really feel it is a um, an invasion um, for the government to know information ab about them. Um, I, I don't personally share that view and I, I don't think there's actually a ton of, um, ton of uh, uh, like mutual ground in which to argue with folks like that, right? If you're just against surveillance ideologically, I think that, you know, I, I, I think you're gonna become much less relevant, frankly, in the next several years of policy, policy debates. Um, um, so that's kind of one group. The other group of people are people who are basically just kind of technocrats who think, yeah, of course we need surveillance, but if you look at the history of surveillance in this country, it's often really wasteful, it's ineffective, it's used to target minorities, there's mission creep, there's all of this sort of stuff. And so we have to tread very, very carefully. And I think it's, it's important to very clearly differentiate between the more kind of ideological arguments against surveillance, which I don't think there's a lot to say, and then the more technical, technocratic arguments to limit surveillance, which I think are great. And I, I you know, consider myself one of those people that, that thinks about that sort of stuff. Hmm. I am like interested that like you split this between libertarians and technocrats. That's not where I would put it, but yeah, where, sure. Where would, you, where, would you, where would you put it? Uh, I would kind of put it like between American and European. Um, and I would put Americans in two different camps, which are, maybe aligned with what you just described, but then I would describe like the idea of privacy as like a dignitary right that like the US constitution doesn't recognize as you said, but that like, you know, the UN constitution, like the, and the UN charter and, uh, and most of the EU like basically does recognize. And so there's kind of this, I'm just kind of interested in this idea that like, I just kind of, <sighs> I do agree though in, in bulk with Ben's point in particular, which is that like we call all of this something else 
and it ends up being the same thing. So I call it content moderation, which it is some of the time, but it is also sometimes, frankly, censorship. And I would like, yes, exactly. And like, it's the same thing with surveillance, like exactly the same thing. Um, I think the distinction really for me lies in but scale. The content moderation is also surveillance, by the way. Yes, no, it totally is. Um, and I was just kind of thinking as, as Alan was talking, and I was like, what if we lived in a world in which like going forward, I was actually like tending to my biscuits and listening. And I was like, I'm gonna bring, maybe I should bring my biscuits How, bu over. how bucolic, this is like this pastoral scene of biscuits and- I really have a lot of dirt under my nails, even though I've been washing my hands like obsessively. Uh, but I mean, it's good clean dirt, dirt don't hurt. Um, but there is a, but I mean, my point is, is basically like, I was trying to say that there is like, I was, how much am I willing to share about my life? Like in every day, like in a, in a YouTube live streaming thing, um, that I know some of my students watch and I know my faculty watches and I know like, you know, colleagues watch. And so and my, my parents would be like horrified. So there's just, there is all of these notions of privacy that are, as we talked about, based on social norms that are rapidly changing not going to your grocery store without a mask. And then other ones like how you share information, which seem outdated um, or like generationally bound. Does that make sense? It, it does. Can I, can I just say one not important thing and then one, one real thing? So the not important thing, though it's important to me, it's really hard to go to the grocery store with a mask on. I just want to, I want to say that I'm a, I'm a big fan of the produce section. I go there and I like you know, smell the oranges and like, it's like, it's like a Zen thing for me. I like it's really hated hard. people like you before this. I am like, the, who the I hell am, is smelling I, oranges? I, am the, I want like, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's like my communing with nature, um, but it's really hard to do that through a mask. Um, so it's, it's interesting that you would, you would bring Europe into this. So I think this is a common view that there's this big European US divide, right? And that Europe takes privacy really seriously. They think of it as part of dignity and autonomy and the US kind of doesn't. And I just, I, I've, I don't think that's right, actually. And, and um, I think that the EU and certain bureaucrats and policymakers in the EU think of privacy this way. But I think that actually the EU member states, which as we're seeing now are so much more important when it comes to policy and actually doing things in the EU are vastly less concerned with privacy than the United States is, right? And when you look at the levels of, this is kind of the big, so I used to work in the, in the, in the Department of Justice, um, in the National Security Division, and, and I spent a lot of time working on these kind of US-EU issues. And, and we'd have these, it was really funny because you, you talk to the EU people and they'd go on and on about how their conceptions of privacy were so much better than America's and we'd listen politely and then they'd leave and you know, whatever it is, what it is. And then we turn to like the, the representative from some European Union nation. And we'd say, you can't possibly believe in this because if you did, like none of this relationship would work. And they would say, oh yeah, don't worry about the EU. No one actually listens to them. And so I think there's this giant disconnect between um, what the kind of intellectuals in Europe say and what the actual governments in Europe do. And they are and so a, much less concerned about privacy than the United States. They don't have anything like also FISA. A huge, there's also a huge disconnect between the justice ministries of the member state countries and the interior ministries of the member state countries. That you have these kind of multiple personalities of, 
uh, toward privacy of the intelligence agencies of the countries and the interior ministries on the one hand, which are all about data sharing and getting information and the data protection authorities and the justice ministries, which are all you know, really interested in, in articulating high-minded principles. Yeah. I mean, like, I kind of feel like, you know, there's this, that's actually a great point. I almost feel like Europe figured out sooner, well, had the opportunity to figure out sooner because they rewrote their entire constitution like in like a hundred years ago, um, basically, uh, figure out how to do this better, uh, than America does it, which is basically to say, like, just show them the rights, like and co codify the rights, give them, perform the rights, perform the idea of the rights, um, in the, in the official founding documents, and then just do whatever the hell you want after that. Is well, that yeah, and, and I, I think to kind of, to, and maybe to kind of give them even more credit, I, I think the other thing that they've done, which is really helpful, and I, I think what we are going to see actually um, in America, because there's no other way of doing it, is to say, look, everyone has a right to privacy, because obviously it's an important right, and there are tons and tons of things the government does that implicate that right to privacy, right? Obviously, like breaking your house down to search it implicates privacy, but so does um, collecting information for the census, so does doing contact tracing for coronavirus. You know, almost anything you can think of implicates privacy, but that's fine. The court's job is not, or like, yeah, the court's job is not to say, did this implicate a fundamental right? If so, the government can't do it. It's to say, most things implicate fundamental rights. No big deal. We have a mechanism for figuring out if that's okay. And it's called proportionality, right? What is the, you know, how much of the right did you infringe upon? Was there a good reason to do so? Was there a, a better way you could have done so? that you didn't do and you just I used to think that this that was way. such an onerous and like bullshit burden and now I like have found myself really grateful for it honestly right. I want to sketch out a uh, zero privacy impact surveillance scheme for coronavirus and have you both tell me why it's a problem so what I'm about to describe is loosely based on an article that Stuart Baker wrote on Lawfare, uh, ironically in praise of an app developed by the Singaporeans. Um, uh, so with uh, due respect for its uh, uh, somewhat disreputable origin and the baggage that it, like rum, carries, uh, I think there's a what lot- What do you have against Singapore? Or is this a dig on Stuart Baker? No, no, no. It's a dig on Singapore, which is an authoritarian monstrosity. Uh, With really good chili crab. Yeah, no, no. It's got, it's got uncommonly good food. Um, I, I, I have enjoyed every moment I've ever spent in Singapore, and, uh, and uh, the government is a real horrible thing. Um, okay, but here's, here's, the, um, uh, here's the way the app works. First of all, uh, let's say it were developed by Apple. Um, so it's not developed by the government. You can download it if you want to. So it is purely voluntary. And what it does is if I choose to download it and you guys choose to download it, then whenever our phones are in close proximity to one another for a protracted period of time, say 15 minutes, 
enough time for one of us to really cough on the other. Uh, the two phones log that they have been in contact with one another. Now, if I am then diagnosed with coronavirus, I may, but wouldn't necessarily have to, turn over my phone to public health authorities for the limited purpose of examining these logs so that they could warn the people I have been in close proximity to that they have been exposed to somebody who has been exposed to coronavirus and then they can get tested. And so my question is, if the app uh, is effective, that is it works, and the downloading of it is purely voluntary, you would do it say to protect yourself and to allow to protect those that you care about and might be in contact with. And if the subsequent disclosure of the information is also voluntary, why does this pose any privacy threat at all? Mm. Um, so, so, so there's like a legal question and then there's a more privacy question. So there's- No, like and I'm, legal... I'm not asking, the legal question is it's, you want to download it, they want to produce it, yeah. you do that, that's easy. But I'm talking about the, like, my question is, is there even a normative privacy problem here if it's all voluntary? Well, you're, you're using voluntary in a way that I, oh, sorry, and Alan, tell me if I'm wrong, but you're using voluntary in a way that like, basically thinks that privacy is completely like inscribed by a concept of consent. And like most empirical studies and most, I would say like some really great empirical studies recently show that like people can't knowledgeably consent to privacy, even when like to, to like, to like, to giving away their privacy concerns, even in certain contexts like COVID or like a doctor's office or like whatever, people have no ability to like really understand exactly what they're uh, or I shouldn't say that no ability. Uh, people don't typically understand exactly what they're giving away when they give away those rights. And so I think that that's kind of the thing that like is it hinges on, but Alan, go ahead. So, so, so yeah, what, one argument is that you can't kind of informatively consent away your privacy. Um, another argument is that um, your disclosure, even your voluntary, let's say you could, right? consent, even your voluntary disclosure of data to the government or to some third party has these spillover effects on other people because um, it tell it allows the government, let's say, not just to figure out that you have coronavirus because you told them, but to figure out that people in your house might have coronavirus or people on your street might have coronavirus. And that then allows them to take actions that may harm those people. Now, to oh, be wait, clear, wait I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't find, look, you, you asked, are there privacy concerns? I don't think that there are privacy concerns that are like particularly troubling to me, but yes, if you were to bring in like a hardcore, like privacy advocate slash theorist, I think you could, they could spin out a ton of speculative and not so speculative privacy, privacy concerns, right? I mean, like they're just people, you know, if you think that the government cannot be trusted with intimate information about you, because they're incompetent or they're malevolent or they're both, right? Um, then yeah, all of this has privacy privacy impacts, which is I think why looking for the magical zero privacy cost solution is kind of pointless. Or can we also just talk about the fact that like 
giving up your privacy to private corporation for the coronavirus period versus giving it up to, to the government for the coronavirus period, it is unclear how either of those parties are communicating with each other about your private, about like your private data or anything. And it's unclear whether those at which point, like those types of, like those types of coronavirus emergency, like like examples, like the people kind of expect out of like these types of moments are going to be lifted by either party. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't have privacy impact. I'm just saying it would be when anybody downloaded the thing, they would be understanding, first of all, that they're participating in this mass surveillance project, that they get some benefit from it, i.e. that if they're uh, the the benefit the immediate personal benefit that I get is the is possibility of being notified uh, if people I'm in contact with are are testing positive. Also, the possibility of having people I care about notified if I'm uh, uh, diagnosed, and so I'm getting some immediate benefit from it. I'm also risking, I'm also giving away a certain amount of information, both about myself and about the people that I'm in contact with, all of whom would have also uh, agreed to this as part of downloading the app in the first place. So my point isn't that it has no privacy impact. My point is that it's not like the government saying, okay, we're going to collect from phone companies the metadata associated with every phone call which is something I never agreed to. Uh, and in fact, I don't even know it's happening. Um, it's not even like a search warrant being executed, which they've met a certain threshold of evidence, but nobody asked me if they could access my, you know, my uh, Google chat or my YouPorn history. Um, uh, this is something that I very self-consciously agreed to do not as part of a click-through agreement, but I agreed to participate in a mass surveillance program, both as a matter of public good and as a matter of my own good. It seems really straightforward to me. I mean, I, I think I think it is pretty straightforward and 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 that specific situation. And, and it's not just Singapore that's doing this. So Singapore made this app open source, but there's like an MIT version that people are working on. I think Oxford's working on it. There are all sorts of, um, uh, outfits in in America and in other countries that have you know impeccable privacy bona fides and are run by you know seriously privacy minded technologist types who are coming up with this stuff. So I think that's I think that's probably fine. I think one question to ask though is, um, and this is why I'm a little skeptical of these apps. Not that they're not part of the solution at, at all. They sound like they could be really useful, uh, but because let's say that a fraction, let's say that some fraction of the population downloaded and started using these apps, right? And therefore we had a bending of the curve somewhat, right? Well, I, don't, I don't know what it is, right? Well, that would, I think, make really vivid that this kind of surveillance is incredibly effective, right? And effective so then the question- in which, Effective in what way? Well, let, let's, let's say we're effective. Let's say these apps actually helped flatten the curve, decrease mortality, right? I'm not an epidemiologist, so I don't even know what we're trying to accomplish exactly, but, but made things that's kind of my somehow. point, which is like surveillance apps are effective, but that is the thing is that the effectiveness in which people agree and give their consent to download the apps and use them, the effectiveness of them is 
find in the limited nature that they understand what it is that they're like using these types of new technology. And then when that changes, they continue, like they drag the consent along. Yeah, Does that so, make well, sense? Yeah, so, so, that, so that's interesting. So, that, that's a, so that's a different argument than I was gonna make. So the argument you're making, it sounds like is look, you know, let's say these apps are really effective at whatever they're trying to do. Well, two months from now, what's going to happen to all that data? What's going to happen to these apps? Right. Exactly. So that's one question. Totally fair question. The, the well, that's question, one, that's that's part one of my question. The second part, part, part is more interesting. Okay. So part part one of my answer, and then we can get to part two, or like sub one or something, um, is is Leo. You know, let's say that some you know substantial fraction of the population downloaded these apps, and therefore they had some beneficial effect. Um, wouldn't the response be from the general public or the government be, wow, this is really effective, right? This kind of surveillance really works. Why are we allowing people to choose into this or not, right? Like we don't allow people whether or not to get their boilers inspected, right? Because when they blow up, that's a big problem, right? Or, or whatever, any other of the million health and safety things we do in this country, right? So, so to me, I'm skeptical that these apps unless they were 100% effective, which I don't think anyone is claiming that they would be, would not essentially just lead the way to government mandates, which again, I, I personally am probably okay with, but this is to answer Ben's point of what are the privacy harms? So there's like a second order thing going on, I think. All right, so question. If this app were available now from a source you trusted, i.e. not the government of Singapore, but I don't know, Apple computer or the MIT privacy lab or, you know, take your pick. Um, would you download it? I, I, it's just a question. I probably would. Um, I, I, I think that, and I wonder if people working on these apps are thinking about this. I think really key to an app like this is to guilt people into using it. And the best way of doing that is to um, allow people to publicly broadcast that they're using this app, right? So like there should be some way, whether it's on social media or in your email signature to prove that you are in fact using this app. And I, I don't know exactly what it would be, right? You'd embed some like bit of HTML code and it would show a smiley face or something if you are a registered user in good standing. Cause I think this is the sort of thing that there's an instinct of this is creepy, which I think is a fair instinct. And for it to work, it needs to be counterbalanced by the instinct of everyone is doing this. And if I don't do it, I'm gonna be that jerk. I'm a creep and I'm proud of it. Would you download exactly. it, um, Yeah, I actually am really on, I think that like people over, I think that we, we are, we are really, I think that the, what you just said about like the, we have a, we have a, a leaning towards thinking like this is creepy. And so we're not going, like, we're not going to do this or we judge people for doing it. I actually think that that's, um, I think what's happening in that in that moment is people are updating their priors about what they're putting out into the world and they're uncomfortable with it. Like that's basically like, I think that like when you have in the privacy context, people that you confront them with, okay, we're going like, did you know that ever, like, so I experienced this, I wrote this um, thread last two years ago, it was two years ago. Um, no, it was last year. It was um, a thread on Twitter that was about basically an assignment that I gave to my privacy information students, uh, information privacy students that was like, I have seven of them. And I was basically like, okay, it's spring break. When you're off traveling, I don't want you to ever over purposefully 
eavesdrop on any conversation that is obviously meant to be private. And I do not want you to do anything creepy or like do like record this in any way. But I want to see if you can de-anonymize a person in public that just based on like the things that they're loudly saying on their phone or otherwise in other contexts. Um, and based on like their clothing or like, or their like monograms on their luggage or like whatever else. And people were like, I got interviewed, like this ended up getting written up and I wrote an op-ed for the New York times. And then I wrote, uh, it was in the NPR and people freaked out. And like, everyone was like the creepy assignment. And I was like, is it creepy? Or am I like doing you a service by telling you that you're going around shedding this information all the time without even realizing it for people to take up? And like, if you don't think that there are people that do this, there are totally people that do this and you should be aware of that. And there's this, I mean, this is like Woody Hartzog's work on like privacy by obscurity. This is all this kind of stuff. Like, I just think that it like kind of all blends together at a certain point, which is like, like people need to change how they think about privacy and what their reasonable expectations are for how private everything is. Yeah, so I have two stories about this. Um, one of the people who does this sort of thing, you know, professionally is a woman named Ashley Feinberg. And uh, she works for Slate now. She used to work for Gawker or I forget which. Um, and she's uh, principally, uh, she's become, she recently outed um, uh, uh, Mitt Romney's secret Twitter feed. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, the Pierre Delecto feed. But her fir one of her first big uh, uh, coups in this department was outing Jim Comey's Twitter feed while he was in, uh, in uh, while he was still FBI director. And one of the key pieces of information that she used in doing that was me. Um, that is that that feed followed me and had had, I was one of the very small number of people that it followed. Um, uh, a lesser known Ashley Feinberg piece. She uh, uh, spoofed my email by way of trying to get Comey to give her a password to something. Oh uh, and God. she sent him an email uh, disguised. It feels like a 1030 violation. Are well, except kidding? they're in tiny letters at the bottom. It said, this is not really Ben Wittes. It's really uh, Ashley. I mean, it's super <laughs> sleazy. Um, she did ex escape a 1030 <laughs> prosecution. But yeah, there are people who do this. Sounds and, like wire fraud, my friend. Um, uh, I'm sure she was acting on advice of counsel. And when I have confronted her in public about identity theft, she has been very defensive and calls it undercover journalism. Uh, as the person whose identity was stolen for this purpose, uh, uh, I have always you are, taken you're it. You're less sympathetic. I'm a little less sympathetic. Uh, notably, as, as the story reflects, Jim did not fall for it. He... Uh, uh, he sent me an email saying, is this you? And I said, no. <laughs> and that was the end of it. Um, so that's story number one. Story number two is that shortly after this happened, uh, one of my student contributors uh, uh, engaged in a much less ethically problematic uh, uh, 
stalking attempt at, let's just say, a person of extraordinary prominence. Um, and we, and the person wrote up very eloquently, elegantly, how he had identified this person's Twitter feed uh, and asked if I would publish it. And I, um, along with uh, another uh, person, uh, the person had ethical qualms about what he had done actually and um, didn't know whether publishing it was the right thing. And, um, and partly because of my experience with with Ashley Feinberg and Jim Comey, I didn't want to, I don't want Lawfare to be in that business. Uh, I was completely convinced this was the person. And so I actually advised this person to uh, turn the article into a memo to the individual about how your anonymity is a lot less safe than you think it is. And that Twitter feed has never been outed. I don't think it still exists. Um, and I think that person um, was extremely grateful to not have had that story, which by the way, I think had no public, real public interest. It was like the Jim Comey Twitter feed, you know, just outing somebody to show that you can do it. Um, and I have always felt very good about like, that person has a little more privacy because uh, that kid decided to, uh, share the information as a memo to the individual rather than to out the person. Did you ever hear how that memo was received? Yes. Um, well, I, not well? Oh, no, it was received very well. It was and like it was they deeply, were thankful? It was deeply appreciated and it was um, uh, and, um, and received A, with uh, appropriate gratitude, humility, and good humor. It, Kate, it, it did occur to me. So it's funny. So when you, when you described your assignment, my first thought was that's a creepy assignment and, and that's a really cool assignment and it's a really good assignment. And it's also a creepy assignment, but then it occurs to me that like anyone who's done any online dating in the last seven years, I mean, that's, that's all exactly you're doing. That's like point, all you do Alan. basically. That and anyone, exactly who, and anyone who denies that they do that is lying. Yes. No, everyone does this about everything. And my point was we carry these tools to do this around in our pocket on these tiny computers with this massive search engine and all of these abilities all the time. And people are constantly shedding information and not aware of how much, I mean, like literally there were, so there were two, I would say there are two different types of information that my students collected. One was literally sitting in a Starbucks, listening to someone read their credit card, birth date, exp expiration date, social security number over the phone in Denver. Okay. <laughs> and so like, they were like, I don't think I would have noticed unless you had told me to be like aware of like my surroundings. And I'm like, like that's all it takes is like a one person who is aware in a setting to pick up these types of things. And then the second thing was more to like the point which I was trying to describe, which is that like, if you have your letterman's jacket on that has your name on it and you say an identifying thing about you on the subway about like what town you're from or whatever else, people can find you like that. Like they can de-anonymize you in five seconds. And I think that it's uh, like, 
I think that we're idiots if we think that it's just people who are on dating apps or people who are looking for jobs and like researching their employers or their potential employees or whatever by Googling. Like, no, we, like, we all do that. And that was kind of my point is like, this is just a, this is just a bomb waiting to go off. So, so I, I am, I am curious, do you guys think that one of the kind of out of the aftermath of all of this there, you know, we will set up a South Korea style disease surveillance regime. And so like, just to be more concrete, like right now there is no good law that fits this fact pattern, right? So we have, you know, national security surveillance law, which doesn't really fit. We have um, criminal surveillance laws, the Stored Communications Act, which like you can sort of use in bits and pieces if you wanted to do this stuff, but it doesn't really work properly. And then we have a bunch of really vague open-ended authorities, right? So you have all like the public health authorities and the emergency authorities, which I think you could actually make an argument would authorize the creation of this kind of surveillance, right? But no one likes that because of course that's really vague and stuff like that. So, you know, if this is gonna be fixed, right? Doesn't Congress have to pass a law basically like the, the, the disease stored communications, like the infectious disease stored communications well, act equivalent. Ben, I, you answer first because my, I know that mine's gonna be crazy. So you're assuming, I think, that the things you would want to access are communications, and I'm not sure that's right. I, I think no, you you want you want you mostly want location data. Exactly. So it's yeah. I, I think to say disease stored locate stored communications act is probably a little bit misleading. Yeah. But look, sure. um, there's another problem that you didn't mention. Excuse me, which is that to the extent that there are the kind of granular authorities you're talking about except with respect to interstate matters or the borders, they tend to reside in the state police power, not in the uh, federal government. So if you're thinking about creating a like FISA of the disease world or a Stored Communications Act, A, it's gotta be national, B, it's gotta be public health based, and C, it has to be uh, it has to get down to the layer of individuals, of regulating the conduct of individuals, which we don't normally think of the federal government as, as doing, uh, except in the, in the criminal context. But I was but going to say, so this is perfect, because what I was going to say was like, you can do this and it would be, it would pass constitutional muster, maybe if it was state by state. Like maybe if each state created its own kind of like created its own standards and like had its own, I think that like, if you had a federal registry across, why do you like Ben, why do you think that a national registry would be beneficial versus a state registry? Well, so as I understand the South Korean law and I have read exactly one detailed article about it, it's basically a public health law that is triggered by the presence of a dangerous communicable disease. And it allows uh, 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 isolation and surveillance in connection with the management of that disease. But it's a very specific targeted set of authorities and it grew out of the MERS epidemic and the, the South Korean failure to uh, uh, to do that. Now, I have no doubt that you could pass a federal law like that, and it would be constitutional. Um, I do wonder 
if in a country this size, realistically, you would have the federal manpower located in the CDC, right? Which yeah, that's kind of, I, maybe that's what I'm talking about, which doesn't is really like- have detention authority, right? So I think you'd have like, you, you, there are some logistical components that in a country as small as South Korea, where I think policing is a national function anyway, I think you're, you don't have that in the United States you do. I think realistically you're recruiting state authorities to do a lot of the enforcement. So it's a more constitu- it's a more it's a more complicated proposition to get it working in the United States. But I think the basic idea that the government in the circumstances of like this, that the national government is A, considered the responsible actor for a bunch of things and B, has the authorities to do it is pretty commonsensical. I mean, I would actually disagree. I was just heralding today to a friend on the phone that like lo- this entire this entire thing, like this entire pandemic has been a triumph of local and state governments that are basically stepping in and serving people in like really conscripted ways uh, uh, that are super helpful to the scale at which like the various areas and municipalities and like, and like locations that people are, are affected by the disease and that the federal government has fallen down all over itself. And so like, I kind of think that like going forward after watching that, the reactionary kind of react, if I was going to do like give proactive rights to anyone, that was kind of what I was saying, but I was saying it poorly. If I was going to give proactive rights to anyone that like, I think that the proactive rights should be in like state in the States to like kind of control something like this. Does that make sense, Alan? Well, well, yeah, and so I mean, I totally agree with you, right? That that this is this pandemic shows why some degree of federalism and specifically redundancy, not not federalism in the states are allowed to, you know, states can do things the feds can't, but rather, if the feds fail at something, the states can also do that thing. That's really really important. But you know, so I, I'm in Minnesota, right? Um, to the west of me are the Dakotas, neither of which I believe are in lockdown. This is like as of like 40 but There hours. are no people in either. There are literally no, no people in the Dakotas. You know, I mean, there are some. There, there are some. Um, very- Sioux Falls is, is happening in place. There's Iowa, which is not in lockdown. And there are people in Iowa. And yeah. then there's Wisconsin, which is both in lockdown and having, and a having primary, an election. Yeah. Right? So, so um, I'm a, perhaps a little less sanguine about letting, letting, the, letting the, the states kind of just just do this. I, I guess my I guess my bigger point is like I don't know how much this is gonna cost, but this is like in, in addition to the thousands and thousands of tens of thousands of people this is gonna kill, this is gonna cost some like insane numbers of trillions of dollars, right? How could this not result in and when you when you look at American history, right? American government expands basically in response to giant catastrophes, right? How could this not result in the largest, like one of the largest expansions of the surveillance state in American history, right? Whether you like it or not, or anything like that, it's just- It's I, just I in like a different vector. Like a titanic historical force here, um, but- It's in a bio vector, whereas like before it was in like some type of security, like it was a bio, now it's a biosecurity vector, whereas before it was like a, like a physical security vector or something, I, whatever that means. But like, yes, I agree. We are out of time. We are a little bit overboard. Alan, this was so lovely. Thank you what for bringing delight. 
yourself and your rum cocktail to our show. This was very fun, even though we are here in lieu of fun. Uh, and, um, we will be back tomorrow with, I think we still have, don't know what our guest is going to be tomorrow. We have like Friday and mo next Monday planned, but until then, does, Han does Hannah want to wanna join us tomorrow? What? You should ask her. You should ask her. Who? I Hannah. Oh, Hannah. Yeah, totally. That would be great. Yeah, I I'll, would I'll love that. I also am dying to get on, um, Someone that I met a couple months ago, Jason Furman at the uh, oh, Kennedy yeah. School. Um, I don't know if he'd come on. He's not a close friend. He's just like an acquaintance. But like, I would be like, I think he's brilliant. And like, he has had like a lot of really, really smart things to say about stimulus checks and everything that's going to be happening. And so that would be like my, like, I think maybe we should make tomorrow a little bit of a economist show. If we you, all right. I just want to say you guys are becoming, if not YouTube famous, then you are Zoom famous. And that is that is the new currency in our what is Zoom lockdown. Famous? It's our lock. This is what this, 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 this is Zoom famous right here. We will uh we'll we take will it. be back tomorrow for the pre-Seder edition. Um oh yeah. Uh, when is Seder Ben? So I can remember uh, Thursday, it's, Friday. It's Wednesday. No, no, it's Wednesday, Thursday. Wednesday. Um okay. And so is that uh, is we it will... always a Wednesday, Thursday? No, it's, it's, okay. a it's like a lunar calendar, thing, you know, mysterious Hebrew uh, calendar. Like a, Alan, like I'm not Jewish. Thing. Give me a break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a law right. professor in New York City. Okay, bye, guys. Bye. Talk to you later. <laughs>